You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Psalm 62. Psalm 62 on page 579. A song that is uh, entitled for the director of music for Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Uh, Jeduthun, by the way, was a uh, musician in the temple like Asaph and Heman. And this song is to be sung. It was to be sung in a particular style. We're, we're going to sing it um, when I'm done, but um, it's great that God has given us uh, a book of songs in the Bible. Incidentally, I was intrigued. There is a, a gentleman called Joe Barnard who's just been ordained as the minister of Kultarlity Free Church up in uh, near Inverness, and it was a very small rural church that was dying, and it is really growing and developing. And Joe has... Uh, brought a friend along called John Wilson, and between them, they have uh, introduced a, a style of singing the Psalms, uh, accompanied with uh, responsive singing, which actually is a lot of what would have happened with some of these uh, songs in the temple. I'm not sure that that would have happened with this one, but it is a song that David wrote about his own experience. It was a song that is to be sung by the people of God then and by the people of God now. And the background to it is very straightforward. Um, David is under considerable and intense pressure, and in today's jargon, he's mega stressed, like super stressed, uh, migraine-style stressed and more. And what he's doing here is he's arguing with himself. He's reasoning with himself. He uses a word... Uh, a Hebrew word, ak, ak, uh, which it's hard to translate, but it's in verse 1, it is in verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 9. And it just simply means truly, truly, and he's, uh, he's persuading himself of something. He's faced under enormous pressure, and he's dealing with a tendency that some of us have to kind of despair. You know, things are going well, we're fine. But when things are not going well, we can really, really struggle. And I think this is a song for people who struggle. And uh, I hope it will be helpful to you. So let's read, first of all, verses 1 to 4. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would all of you throw him down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouth they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Selah. Selah marks the end of, this would have been the verse uh, that would have been sung. My soul finds rest in God alone. It's literally, it's towards God my soul is silent. My soul waits in silence. And what David is really saying here is not like he's kind of some sort of Zen Buddhist folding his arms, putting his hands together and chanting and just, I feel so at peace. What he's saying is, 
All the words have been said. All the analysis has been done. And at the end of the day, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, and now I wait. I'm just going to wait. I'm waiting for God to answer. I'm waiting for God to come up and, and help me. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. The NIV, I think, gets it wrong, as you'll see why in a moment, but because I think um, he's saying, God is my fortress. I'll not be seriously shaken. He has been shaken. And he's been shaken because of what happens in verses 3 and 4. Basically, people have let him down. People close to him, people who he would have expected better of, family, friends, he's been let down. In fact, more than that, it's not just that he's been let down, he's been assaulted. How long will you assault a man? He's been blessed with the mouth and yet cursed inwardly. He's had to deal with flattery. I don't know um, if you've I'm sure some of you have experienced this, and if you haven't, you will. That the people who are closest to you sometimes, people who you trust, people who, they're your friends, they're your allies, they're your brothers and sisters, even in the church, that you discover that they are the ones who are undermining you. They are the ones who are gossiping about you. They are the ones who are attacking you. And look at, I love this picture of flattery. They take delight in lies. With their mouth they bless, but in their hearts they curse. And he speaks of himself like a, a, a tottering wall, that he's, he's struggling, and people just come along and give him a wee push, pushing it a wee bit more. I've seen it so many times when people will come and say, oh, that was really great or what you did was really good, or you're such a great person. And then they go away, and if you could be in their company for the next few hours, you will hear them say, I can't stand that guy. What, I, that was rubbish. But they say things in one way. Now, personally, I'll just say as a personal thing this. I hate it. I really, really, really hate it. I hate flattery. I hate people being really nice to you because they think they're being nice. Uh, the worst example I've personally ever experienced was somebody who said to me, uh, Dave, we really love you, man. We love the work that you're doing. We love, and I believed them. And I thought, they love me, and they love the work that I'm doing. And I was very happy. And within 24 hours, I heard that they were trying to get me fired. And these were Christians. They're just lying. Just lying. Straight out. Sometimes some of us, and I would include myself in this, are too blunt and too straight and too rude for our own good, and it's not right, and we should speak with more graciousness and so on. But please don't equate being nice with telling the truth. Don't say something nice to somebody's face and then go and trash them behind their back. That is just, that's what he's speaking about here. And it caused David a great deal of stress, as it, I think it does any of us when we're uh, attacked in a personal way. And here's something that's even, for me, very interesting. Evil is attracted to weakness. Evil is ruthlessly competitive. 
when uh, Enron, the US company that uh, exploited people and so on, when it was finally found out and its managing director was accused, you know what his favorite, he said his favorite book was? The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. Because he said, if you're weak, we squash you. If you're weak, you're out of the way. Let me give you a quote from uh, a lady called Traudel Junge, who was Hitler's secretary. Writing many years afterwards, she said this, Sometimes we also had interesting discussions about the church and the development of the human race. Perhaps it's going too far to call them discussions because he, that is Hitler, would begin explaining his ideas when some question or remark from one of us had set them off, and we just listened. He was not a member of any church and thought the Christian religions were outdated, hypocritical institutions that lured people into them. The laws of nature were his religion. He could reconcile his dogma of violence better with nature than with the Christian doctrine of loving your neighbor and your enemy. Science isn't yet clear about the origins of humanity, he once said. We are probably the highest stage of development of some mammal which developed from reptiles and moved on to human beings, perhaps by way of the apes. We are a part of creation and children of nature, and the same laws apply to us as to all living creatures. And in nature, the law of the struggle for survival has reigned from the first. Everything incapable of life, everything weak, is eliminated. Only mankind, and above all the church, have made it their aim to keep alive the weak, those unfit to live, and people of an inferior kind. That's a stunning admission. And yet, I think that is the truth. I think Traudel Jünger was telling the truth, and I think Hitler's perception is one that many people have. Evil will squash the weak. When you get the likes of these... um, ISIS murderers, when you get President Putin and others. Who are they picking on the weak? We went to see uh, Selma last night, and I thought it was a great film. Um, Incredible in in many ways. Incredible how uh, evil, actually, the discrimination against African Americans was. Incredible that racism... I think exists amongst all human beings, the evil of the human heart. Incredible how um, Christianity resists that. But if you want to see how evil attacks the weak, in that film there's a scene from uh, Selma where armed men go and beat up and hit little old ladies, shoot an old man in the back. Why? Because that's what evil does. Evil is attracted to weakness. Now, David is aware of that. How long will you assault a man? He's, I'm, I'm, he's basically saying, I'm, I'm down. Why are you kicking me when I'm down? And he contrasts that with God. He alone is my rock and my salvation. And I love this. Because if you contrast God, we saw this morning the strength and the power of God. And yet... What do we know about Jesus? A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Isaiah 42, 3. 2 Corinthians 13, we are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. 
Paul, in that, in that passage in 2 Corinthians, talks about how we don't lie. We don't need to lie. We don't flatter. Since we have God's mercy, we have this ministry. We do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. David says, this is what evil does. This is what men do to me. But I trust in a God whose goodness is such that it spares the bruised reed. Goodness shows mercy. Evil does not. Then on to verse 5. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. This repeats the first verse but with some differences. For example, verse 1 says, my soul finds rest in God alone. Verse 5 says, find rest. It's saying, be still. It's a command to himself. What he's saying at this point is, and it's something for all of us when we're, we're stressed in this way, when we're attacked, when we feel, you know, because our instinct is to, to fight back. And he says, okay, Forget your enemies and focus on God. Fill your thoughts with God. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope, he is my hope. My hope comes from him. Verse 1, he said, my salvation comes from him. Because hope and salvation are the same thing. Our expectation. I think sometimes as Christians, we are scared to hope too much. We're scared to have too high expectations. And yet, as we look at God and as we look at Jesus, surely it is the case that we can expect great things from God. Was it C.T. Studd, I think, who said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. In this verse, he's talking about rest through trust. In the first verse, he's talking about how he's stressed and he's looking to God for rest. In this verse, he's saying, no, wait a minute, I am going to trust God. And you'll see the difference when he talks about, he is my fortress, I shall not be shaken in verse 6. That is different from verse 2, not in um, the NIV, but in the original language. In verse 2, he says, I'll not seriously be shaken, but in verse Six, he's saying, I won't be moved. I just, I will not be moved. And there is a growing confidence. It is like the civil rights song, we shall not be moved. The we, the the stress in the modern song, if you like, is on the we. But the believer, the stress for the believer is on the rock, is on the reason why we won't be moved. We may be a tottering wall but we're standing on the rock. He alone is my rock. He alone is my salvation. Jeremiah 9, 23. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. 
We saw that this morning. When Israel is under enormous pressure, when Israel is battered and bruised, when Israel has lost, when Judah has lost, Isaiah comes with a message of comfort, which doesn't say to them, you're going to win. It's a message which says to them, behold your God. This is what your God is like. And here, David has a growing confidence in his God. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Not Jerusalem, not my family, not my army, not my friends. God alone is my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Um, His salvation and his honor, he says, depends upon God. Again, not in anyone else. And we are uh, to trust that God. There's um, a wonderful program on television just now, Wolf Hall. I love the books, Hilary Mantel's books, and I do actually think the, the television adaptation is just superb. Um, and I think it gives a little insight into the times of the Reformation. Well, I think it's in episode two or episode three, the, a lawyer in it, a man called James Bainham, and this actually did happen. He was, uh, he became a, a Protestant. He became a Christian believer because he'd read um, Wycliffe. He'd read the New Testament. And he was compelled to recant by the church at the time on pain of death. And he did recant. And everyone said, well, how wise that was. But as he continued to read the New Testament, he became more and more convinced that what he'd done was denied Christ. So he withdrew his recantation, and he was sentenced to be burnt. And in Wolf Hall, the drama, it shows him the night before in his prison with a candle, putting his hand over the flame of the candle and feeling the heat and being burnt. And it's very well done because it shows the panic in his face and the distress. You are going to be burnt. This is horrendous. Did he recant again? No, he didn't. And it shows him tied to the stake with the wood all around him, with the flames beginning. And you see a difference. You see a confidence. Now, how could you possibly have confidence in God when you're about to be burnt alive for reading the New Testament and believing what the New Testament says? Well, I think that's what David is speaking about. He's saying, my expectation is in God. You know, it's very interesting. Those of you who say, well, I trust in God and I'm confident in God. How do you know that? Because you don't until it's tested. How do you know your faith's for real? You don't until it's tried and tested. And please don't be foolish and think, oh, I'd love to be tried and tested because it's a horrible thing that happens. Horrible. And yet God works through that. He finds rest even in that. And he urges others. Look, he talks to them. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pull out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. When you go through tough times, your experience of God means you can share it more with others. You can tell them. It it doesn't mean that you're talking about yourself and your experience, but it does allow you to speak from the heart as well about what God has done. I, I can think of someone 
uh, I know who uh, had a terrible, terrible childhood, terrible childhood, very abusive childhood. And I remember standing and, and talking to another person who said, oh, no one will understand and, you know, I've had, I've been abused and so on. And I said, I know someone who will understand it's Jesus, but I know someone who can tell you about Jesus. And I pointed her in, in the direction of this other person and she was able to because she herself had been through a horrendous experience. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him. We pour out our hearts, of course, in prayer. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're Christians, we're humans, we'll get stressed. A certain amount of stress is good. A lot of stress is really bad. Do you know, sometimes we have something that will really help us with stress. And it's just simply going to God and letting Him know. It's good to talk and share with other people. I'm not decrying that at all. I think it's great to have friends. But you know, I suspect that sometimes you and I spend too much time talking to other people about our troubles and they don't really help us. In fact, they just maybe reinforce what we're feeling when we'd be better going talking to God. Sometimes we spend so much time talking to other people that we have less time to talk to God. So I think the psalmist is saying that he, he's commanding his own soul to chill, if you like, to rest because he sees God. And then lastly, the last stanza, verse 9, low-born men are but a breath, the high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. Verses 9 and 10 speaks about the shadows and verses 11 and 12 speaks about the reality. Here's the shadows. Low-born men are bred of breath, the high-born are but a lie. The world offers no solution. All men, all human beings, the, the low-born and the high-born, he's just saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're very poor, it doesn't matter if you're the king. There's nothing that they can do. All, in fact, he uses a word for breath that is used in Ecclesiastes Meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. We're just a lie. We're just a breath. Listen, you who say, says James, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And you see, here's the problem with the shadows. It's not that you have nothing to fear from human beings. It's that you have nothing to hope from human beings. They can't save you. Your parents can't save you. Your children can't save you. Your job can't save you. Your friends can't save you. Your country can't save you. None of it can save you. It's weighed as in a balance 
but they're as light as a feather. They're blown away by the wind. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. They're there, they're being weighed, and a breath comes along, and it's gone. My hope is in money. My hope is in my cleverness or exams. My hope is in my family. No. The psalmist David is saying, it can't be. I'm, I'm wealthy. I'm the king. I'm, a, I'm famous. I'm a great warrior. I've been chosen by God. But my hope cannot be in these things. And here's an extraordinary statement. Look what he says. Don't put your trust in extortion or take pride in stolen goods. Now you understand that. It's wrong to bully people and it's wrong to um, steal things. Fair enough. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. He's saying that to put your hope in riches is as bad as a life of crime. It's the same thing. Extortion, cheating on taxes, or just making money for the sake of it. How many have made shipwreck of their faith because of this? Thomas LeBanc says this. I think it was a French Puritan. He said, the more deeply riches are sown in the heart through love, the more deeply will they pierce through grief. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, Paul warns Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Though your wealth increase, says the psalmist. Have you noticed that wealth breeds wealth? The Bible doesn't say that wealth is wrong. Indeed, wealth can be a great blessing from God, and many of us here are proportionally, in terms of the world at least, incredibly wealthy. And for that, we are thankful. But we are not to put our hope in wealth. And we are not to be high-minded, because one of the things that happens is sometimes you find that the more wealth people get, the more arrogant they get. I have a friend who works in Waitrose. Now, there isn't a Waitrose in Dundee. So I'm sorry for those of you who really like Waitrose. I don't think there is anyway. I've never been there. But um, I have a friend who works in Waitrose. And he says, the arrogance of the customer. You know, Waitrose is like upper. You know, good quality food and all the rest of it and wonderful. And if there was one in Dundee, I'd probably go occasionally. But it's, it's like, you know, I go to Waitrose. Nobody wears a shirt that says, I go to Lidl's or Aldi. You know, though Aldi is an award-winning supermarket, according to my wife. Um, but he says that the worst thing about working in Wade Rose is the arrogance of the customers. And sometimes you just see that. And, and David is saying this. He's saying, look, don't put your trust. And though your riches increase, don't become arrogant. Don't think you're better than other people because you can buy more things. Because the reality, verses 11 and 12, is this. Power belongs to God. He is the rock. Humans are the feathers, if you like. Now, you, again, you've got a really interesting choice here. If you're stressed, you're Christian, not a Christian, whatever, you have a choice. You could have a worldview which says God is just an, if he exists, is just an unconcerned spectator of events. Everything that happens is just blind chance. Or you can come with a biblical worldview which says, although I don't get it, although I don't understand it all because I'm not all-knowing, I don't believe that everything is just blind chance and I commit myself to a God who has the whole world in his hands. 
I know these two things. You, O God, are strong, and you, O Lord, are loving. Sometimes in life, you've just got to come back to the absolute basics. All the big thoughts, all the fancy ideas, all the philosophies, all trying to work out the problems. Sometimes you just come back to simply this. I know two things. I know that you, O Lord, are strong, and I know that you are loving. And how that works out in my life, I don't know, but I know these. That's what I trust. Calvin says, it is essentially necessary if we would fortify our minds against temptation to have suitably exalted views of the power and mercy of God, since nothing will more effectually preserve us in a straight and undeviating course than a firm persuasion that all events are in the hands of God and that He is as merciful as He is mighty. Get that one. Get that one. All events are in the hands of God and He is as merciful as He is mighty. It's a wonderful encouragement. Power belongs to God. Unfailing love is with God. You, O Lord, are loving. And he uses a wonderful Hebrew word, hesed, which you can translate it covenant love or mercy. And what it means is this, the love of your friends and the love of your family, maybe the love of your own heart, the love of people around you, it's all, it's wonderful and it's great but it's never 100% reliable. But hesed is. It is reliable, true, and dependent. So power belongs to God, and mercy belongs to God, so you can wait upon such a God. He is the God of infinite mercy, infinite power, infinite righteousness. And He will reward each person according to what He's done. Is that teaching salvation by works? Well, kind of yes and no. And what we mean by that is this. In Revelation, we're told the dead are judged according to what they have done. And there is no doubt that God looks upon our works. And if we are in Christ, they are the only works that count. Some are saved as if by fire, straw burning up all. But blessed are the dead who die in the Lord for their deeds follow after them. If you hope to be saved by your own good works, you're finished. But if you rely on the works and work of Christ, if you've done the one work required to believe in the one he has sent, then because of God's hesed, because of God's covenant love, you are saved and you will be saved and you will always be saved. Because he's got you, if you like, in his hands. Not that you've got him. He's got you. And that's the reality. So David is, is faced with a world which, as if he looks at it just in terms of what he can sense, uh, you know, in terms of his own feelings, what he can touch, and so on, things are not good. But when he broadens his horizons and considers who God is, as again, as I keep referring back to this morning, but as we tried to look at this morning, then everything changes. Um, I haven't seen the film, actually, but I just know the song so much. Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call when you're bothered with ghosts? Well, I'm not going to call anyone because I've never been bothered with ghosts. Um, but who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. When you're under stress, who are you going to call? It's good to have a friend. It's good to be able to go to the doctor. It's good to... Lots and lots of different things. But when you're really under pressure, I want to say this. I want to say that we need to learn to go to God a whole lot more. If we are weary and heavy burdened, heavy laden, mega stressed, 
Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? We can trust that Jesus completely. We can give ourselves to him completely. The Puritan John Trapp says, they trust no God at all who trust him, not alone. In other words, he's saying, if you don't rely on God alone, you're not really trusting God. He that stands with one foot on a rock and another foot upon quicksand will sink and perish as certainly as he that standeth with both feet upon a quicksand. And how many of us as Christians have got ourselves in troubles because we say, yeah, I'm standing on the rock of Jesus Christ, but just in case that doesn't work, I'm, I'm going to you know, carry out a couple extra insurances in different ways. Calvin explains it this way, God tries his children with afflictions, but here they are taught by David to abide them with constancy and courage. The hypocrites who are loud in their praises of God so long as prosperity shines upon their head while their heart fails them upon the first approach of trial, dishonor his name by placing a most injurious limitation to his power. We are bound to put honor upon his name by remembering in our greatest extremities that to him belong the issues of death. One of the brothers of one of the Coptic Christians who was killed this week was asked, about his brother and was asked about his faith. And I think the interviewer was expecting him to say, oh, how could God do this? And he just simply said, I trust God absolutely, even in circumstances, maybe especially in circumstances like this. You see, because we contrast the infinite power and mercy of God with the fickleness, weakness, and evil of men. And how many of us have got in real trouble because we've forgotten the infinite power of God and we put that onto men and we've forgotten the weakness and fickleness of men and we put that onto God. We are coming to the one who was crucified in weakness, but he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Interesting, isn't it? The phrase that's used here, My soul finds rest, my salvation. He is my rock and my salvation. Sometimes we say, don't say mine, don't say mine. It's like the child. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. But there's a right time to say my, and it's surely here. My hope, my God, Jesus and all in him is mine. It's what we sang. Power and chesed, power and covenant love belong to him and he's mine. He's mine. When we take communion just now, as you take that bread and you drink that wine, you know what you're saying? You're not saying that you're good. You're not saying that you're better than anyone else. You're not saying you're a member of the church. You're not saying you've lived a good life for the past month, and you're going to promise to live a good life for the next month. You're simply saying this. He's mine. He's invited me to his table. His banner over me is love, and he's mine. Now, I'm not saying you'll never feel stress, but I'm saying this is how you cope with stress. I'm saying this is how you can put your hand out and realize that you're going to be burnt to death the following day and still trust God. This is how you can, not nearly as extreme, go to work tomorrow faced with enormous pressures and stresses, 
This is how you deal with the sickness and the illness and is your chemo going to work? Is your friend's chemo going to work? You don't know. How do you cope? You're waiting for a decision. You're waiting for that job interview. You're waiting for that house. Is it going to be sold to you or not? You're waiting for so many different things. You're under stress all the time. And you just simply remember this. I know only two things. You, O Lord, are strong, and you, O Lord, are loving. And Jesus, and all in him, is mine. Let's pray. Lord, help us to… Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.